Well, if you have a Bible this morning, I know we're not back in the Samuel series, but we're going to be doing a verse from Samuel. So the text today is 1 Samuel 13, 14. But we are going to spend a lot of time in Acts chapter 13. So if you want to take those little beautiful ribbons there and just put one for Samuel 13, Acts 13, we'll just bounce back and forth. It'll be great. Before we begin, though, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that as we open your word now, that you would renew within us, Lord, a right spirit, that you would cleanse us and purify us, that you would give us um, a deeper understanding of your word, of ourselves, of yourself. I pray, God, that you would go before us now and that you would protect our hearts and minds, that you would comfort and convict us in equal measure. In Jesus' name we pray, and amen. Now, what we've been talking about through this short Advent series is what led up to the Advent of Jesus Christ. Why did he come? We've been looking at it in a myriad of ways. I could go on uh, doing this kind of series every year for the next 20 years, and we wouldn't cover all the different things. There are a lot of different aspects of the Advent of Christ. But what I want not only for you guys to do is to understand the scriptures better, but to also be able to reach into a particular verses in the Old Testament and pull out of them the entire Bible. That's been what, we, what we've been trying to learn how to do. And one of those verses we find in 1 Samuel. Now, I didn't cover this idea when I covered this material earlier this year because I was saving it for this. So I had mentioned a Godward heart. I mentioned that David has a heart after God. And I didn't really go that far in explaining what I meant. I just used the phrase. But what we're going to do today is think about what it actually means to have a Godward heart. Why do we have a Godward heart? How do we have a Godward heart? What does it mean to have a Godward heart? Because again, you can say things like, well, I wish I had a heart after God. But what does that actually mean in real life? Now, what we've been looking at is a series of covenants. The, the sequence of covenants of promise, right? In, in the New Testament, Paul calls it the covenants, plural, of promise, singular. And I, I hope at this point you understand these different covenants are all about the promise that God made to Eve about delivering mankind. And, and what God does is he comes and he makes new covenants throughout the history of Israel, getting us closer and closer and closer and closer to the fulfillment of promise. So we, we looked at the covenant, uh, we looked at the original promise to Eve, we looked at a covenant with Abraham, we looked at a covenant last week with Moses, and now what we come to is, I, I consider the greatest covenant of them all in the Old Testament, the one with David, the Davidic covenant. Now, just as God's people were oppressed by Pharaoh at the end of the patriarchal era, so they were oppressed by a king at the end of the Mosaic era. This king, which we all know very well at this point, Saul, was a transitional figure. The first king of Israel, and yet because of his sin, not altogether a true king. I think we can honestly say that now. He is a type of Pharaoh himself. In many ways, though, he's worse than Pharaoh because he's sinning against a greater light. Pharaoh did not even understand what he was doing. Saul does understand what he's doing, and and it makes it worse. It makes it worse. Now, as king of Israel, Saul massacred 85 priests, putting the priestly city of Nob under the ban, even though he had failed to put the Amalekites under the ban like God had commanded him. Remember, we covered that. He refused to put God's enemies under the ban, and yet he put the priests of God under the ban. And, and okay, that makes you worse than Pharaoh in, in God's book, the holy book. Now, Saul also sought to slay David. He, he tried and 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 tried. And, and, and as far as that series is going, he's still trying. He's still trying to kill David. And David has made it very clear. You don't 
you don't attempt to assassinate the Lord's anointed. David is the anointed of the Lord, and so Saul. That means they have to keep their hands off one another. That means you have to respect what God has, has initiated. He is an, anointed both men, so both men are anointed. But Saul ignores all of that. And what, what happens then in 1 Samuel 13, 14, is that um, Saul receives very bad news. And this is what it says. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. God is looking for someone who's going to obey. Obeying is more important for a king than anything else, right? His ability to fight, his ability to lead, his ability to count people, his ability to lead worship, all of these things matter less than the simple, straightforward, direct obedience to the Lord God. That is what God is looking for. Now, it is in David that Israel truly had a king from the Lord, a man after God's own heart, one to whom the Lord gave a new covenant. God's new covenant with David did not abolish the law of Moses, nor the promise given to Abraham and Eve. On the contrary, and what we must understand, is that it augments and fulfills both of those, especially in these three issues. With David, you finally actually have the full conquest of the land. You have the establishment of a hereditary kingship, and you have the provision for a new place of worship. Nobody else receives so many gracious things in their covenant. David gets all of these things. He conquers the whole land. He is given promises that his uh, children will sit on the throne of Israel forever, and they are given the temple. God's new covenant with David did not abolish the old things. It, it, It augments them and extends them. Now, in addition to fulfilling certain promises to Abraham and to Moses, the Davidic covenant further developed the idea of a Messiah. Now, if you go back, and what was promised to Eve? What do we call that person that's promised to Eve? Right? Uh, uh, someone who's able to be bruised and yet is going to be a head crusher. Well, that's the Messiah. So we're not, it's not as if Jeremiah and Isaiah and the prophets later in, later in the Old Testament suddenly come up with this idea. This is the idea all along. And when you get to the Davidic covenant, you really start to understand what it means to have a Messiah. What is the Savior going to look like? What is his kingdom going to look like? What is his defeating of his enemies going to look like? Now, the kingly covenant, the one with David, develops that promise further by declaring that the Messiah would be the royal descendant of David through his son Solomon. That's what we come to realize. Okay, now, it's not just some random family that descends from Abraham. It's through this man, David, and through his direct lineage that this promised head crusher is going to come. Now, if you're going to be a good king, if you're going to be a good father, if you're going to be a good leader, what is required of you? What's the number one thing that's required of you? Understanding that your authority does not begin and end with you. A true king in Israel understands that he's actually not the king of Israel. If you're a father in a home, if you want to be a good father in your home, you have to understand that you're not the father. If you want to be a good husband, you have to understand that you're, you're not the husband. Okay? The husband is Jesus. The father is God. Right? The, the king of Israel is God. So what, anyone who's in a position of authority, who's addressing their authority with this in mind, is going to do automatically a better job. I, this has been given to me. I'm imitating someone. 1 Samuel 8-7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. 
So what we have to understand is there's a hierarchy in Israel. There is a hierarchy in, in every structure, and the top of every hierarchy is God. Okay? It's not you. It's not me. It's not Inslee. It's not, it's not the mayor of Linwood. The top of every, every hierarchy is God. And Saul refused to accept that. He made himself, he was a law unto himself. And any time a man is a law unto himself, tyranny <laughs> runs rampant. Death runs rampant. Lies run rampant. Now, obedience to King Yahweh is paramount for everyone sitting on the throne of Israel, for every, every person in authority sitting on any throne. Obedience to King Yahweh is paramount. Now, what we find, and, and this is actually the, the secret ingredient, what does it mean to have a heart after God? Well, we actually hear Isaiah explain it in chapter 50 of his book. This is what it says in verses 4 to 5. Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 5. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Now, that, that right there sounds like the kind of leadership Jesus is going to demonstrate. Doesn't that sound humble? Doesn't that sound teachable? Doesn't that sound like it's actual real authority, but it's kind of authority that's given, not taken? Right? Every, everything that Isaiah is saying of the Messiah is that the Messiah is someone who receives from outside of himself. He obeys something outside of himself. Any desire for independence of action becomes a disqualification for the throne of Israel. It is rebellion against the Lord. Saul disobeys the Lord's command and does what is right in his own eyes. And this tragic parallel, right, this is a, it is a tragic parallel between himself and Adam. Because what did Adam think? Adam thought that he could be a law unto himself. I know what God said, but I'm not going to listen to that. I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. Both men were the heads of their respective social institutions. Both violated commands given them by the Lord. Both expressed an unwillingness to take personal responsibility for their actions. Because of the sin... Because of sin, Adam lost the op- opportunity of eternal life in the garden. Right? He's there, naked, unashamed, walking in the cool of the day with the Lord God. Right? All the handouts grow on trees. Just take care of this place, and you can live here with me forever. And, he's like, and Adam says, no, I would rather be a law unto myself. Because of sin, Saul lost the opportunity for an enduring dynasty. He did what was right in his own eyes. He thought godliness was something to grasp. And God comes and says, no, now I'm taking away your kingdom. I'm taking away your lineage. And what we're going to find out is that everybody that descends from him dies. His whole line is wiped off the face of the earth. These parallels are not accidental. They result from a consistent theological perspective that views loss of position and privilege as inevitable consequences of violating the Lord's commandments. I'm going to say this again, because we are a people of cheap, worthless grace. I'm going to say this again. (laughs) These parallels are not accidental. They result from a consistent theological perspective that views the loss of position and privilege as inevitable consequences of violating the Lord's commandments. Now, you name me a person in the scriptures who violates the law of God and remains unrepentant and keeps their position. Now, this is very important for us. The retention of position as the, is the reward for obedience. And, and this is something that most modern evangelicals do not understand about Jesus. Jesus did not come to meritoriously earn anything. He was not, there was nothing to win. There was nothing to get. He either 
keeps what he already has or he loses it. He comes onto the scene just like Adam and he has all of these things and he either loses them or retains them. And, and he didn't come to become king. He comes from the very beginning in the womb of a, of a 15-year-old girl to demonstrate that he is the king. So all of the things that he does, from when the angel promises him to, to his nine months in the womb, to his being born, all of that demonstrates that he's the king. That's not stuff he had to do in order to win something. <laughs> the triune God was already king. And Jesus came to demonstrate that he's the king. And, and I think that that changes the Gospels a little bit in our minds. He is not earning anything. He's retaining what he already has. Now, the rebellion of mankind is a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Um, this, this is something that um, I find also we're very weak on. People are like, well, that's not really a heart issue. Is it sin? If it's sin, then it's a heart issue. Okay, you can't separate these two things. It's not like sins exist over here, and my heart exists over here, and this can be perfectly fine and clean and pure, and, and yet I'm defiling myself and defiling the world over here. Right? Sin comes from the heart. The problem with mankind is the heart. What, what did Adam love more? God or himself? When Jesus comes, what does he command us? Love me more than yourself. Love me more than your, your brothers, your sisters, your parents, your spouse. Love me more what, than anything else, including yourself. It's always a matter of the heart. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. <laughs> right? The game is given away early on in the Bible. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Right? That doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room. <laughs> Not much. This is why the Lord selects Saul's successor, a man with a heart after Yahweh. A man with a heart after Yahweh. Understanding why Yahweh was seeking a man with a Godward heart, we turn back to our, our, what I call the Apostolic Study Bible. Remember, the Apostolic Study Bible is where we take the New Testament and we lay it over the top of the Old Testament and we drive a nail down through every reference of the Old Testament in the New Testament and we read both parts to come to understand what both parts actually mean. So in Acts 13, okay, now, first off, what was read for us today was a sermon by Paul. Now, Paul... Um, that's a very short sermon. I don't want anyone to think that I'm going to start preaching those kinds of short sermons like Paul would because my argument is that it was only an outline, but that's like a, a long, <laughs> right? Nobody who preaches for th all through the entire night has a, has a sermon that, that's sh that short. Somebody somewhere just found his notes, and so that's what's actually recorded in Acts. But I always find it a little um, humbling. Be like, look at look how short that is. The man made every point he needed to make in four minutes. <laughs> but it's a trick, okay? It's just, it's just an outline. But what was read for us today is a sermon by Paul. Paul goes, right? He's, he's talking to uh, the people of Israel, and what does he do? It, te it teaches you how preaching is supposed to work. Does he, he explains the Old Testament. So the apostle's job was coming in understanding who Christ is and explaining the Old Testament to us. And what that does is it demonstrates to us the position that the Old Testament ought to have in our lives. We ought to use the apostles to understand the Old Testament. That's what Bible study ought to be. Now, in this very lengthy sermon, that was a joke, I'm sorry. So the pace of his, his historical sketch, he's like clipping right along, and he covers 450 uh, years in like a couple verses, and then he slows way down, and he spends twice as much time on David. 
David was a special expression of God's mercy, a man who filled all God's, uh, fulfilled all of God's will for him, a man with a Godward heart, and he explains what that actually means. Acts chapter 13, verses 21 to 23. Paul tells us exactly what it means to have a Godward heart. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now, what is always fascinating, if you pay attention, that's actually not what's written in 1 Samuel. Part of it is. But then the apostle, because he's, he understands the entirety, the whole counsel of God, takes parts from different portions of Scripture and lumps them together in order for us to understand the verse that, was, that he took from 1 Samuel 13. What makes a person, ha- what gives them a Godward heart is the fact that they obey the will of God entirely. Now, after Paul had developed the history of Israel in detail, he then skips over a great deal of time and connects David directly to Jesus. Notice, right? <laughs> you don't go in the scriptures right from David to Jesus, do you? There's, there's another like 500 years of history recorded in the Bible, and then another 500 years of silence, and then Jesus comes. But David just goes right from David, or I'm sorry, Paul goes right from David to Jesus. This is important. It's, it's something that he does uh, often. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit. He's always connecting David and and Jesus directly to one another. Messiah Jesus, the risen son of David, is, is the Lord. He is the king of all creation. This is the heart of Paul's gospel proclamation. And, and why does he do this? It's because so much of the Old Testament, especially the later prophets, are concerned with who is going to be this heir of David. We were promised this heir that was going to sit on the throne forever. We, we were told we were going to have the land. We're going to have it forever. We've been told that we're going to return to the land. We're told we're going to have a temple. We're told that we're going to have the presence of God with us forever. And when the, the latter prophets are writing, that is not the case. So if you go and you read Isaiah, you go and you read Ezekiel, everybody's like, where, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And so Paul makes, takes a lot of time to explain the person you're waiting for is Jesus. And every time he t- goes and preaches to Israel, this is what he's telling them. The person you're all waiting for has come, and his name is Jesus. This is Paul, uh, Peter does the same exact thing in Acts chapter 2. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is what the apostles want Israel to know. The person you're waiting for has come. The advent happened. He's he's been here. And what did you do? You killed him. And what did he do? He came back. Why? He, He was risen up. Because he, just like David was raised up by God, Jesus was raised up by God. It, that those same exact words happen in, in Paul's sermon. He says, God rose up David. And then later he says, God rose up Jesus. He wants you to see the connection. The person you're waiting for has come. Now, the quote in Acts 13.22 is a mixed quote. And this is, it, it, this is what the apostles do all the time. They, they take various parts of the scriptures and they lump them together. I have found David, it says. 
I have found David. That's from Psalm 89, 20. A man after my own heart, 1 Samuel 13, 14, who will do everything I want him to do, Isaiah 44, 28. That's the apostolic study Bible, right? Now what you do is you go hunt down those three verses, read the chapters before, during, and after, and then come back and read this again, and now you're starting to understand what the apostles are trying to get us to understand. Because when they use a reference from a book, it's because they want... At the time, everyone knew the book. What they expect us to do is to know the book as well. How can we say, though, that David did everything that Yahweh wanted? Now, I have to admit, at this point, I struggle a great deal with this part. I personally struggle with it. I'm sorry, I've read the book, right? I've read ahead, and I know what happens in 2 Samuel. How in the world does God say this man did everything that he was supposed to? And and because I struggle with this, what, what what I do is I go and I read Psalm 51, And every time I read Psalm 51, I'm like, yes, okay, okay. The dude sinned. I got you, right? So do I, but I've never written anything close to Psalm 51, nor could I. Because if you read Psalm 51, right, and you go through it line by line, that is a man who understands what he is and what God is, who he is and who God is, what is required of him and how far he's failed, right, how far he's fallen. And so when we're talking about these things, I think modern people, we want perfection. And that's never what God is going for. I'm testing your theology now. God never expects perfection. That's not what he wants. He wants holiness. He wants righteousness. Especially creatures. You're not divine beings. You're not perfect. You're fallen. So what does God want? Does he want you to be absolute perfect? Or does he want somebody like David? David, who's just a man who is passionate about the things God is passionate about. And and, and when he fails, he fails big. And when he repents, he repents big. Right? It's easy for us to stand in judgment of David. But who repents like David? When I read, I'm like, yeah, you know, I probably shouldn't have done that. Right? My poor kids. They've heard me say that a few times. Yeah, daddy probably shouldn't have done that. Now, does that sound like Psalm 51? Right? My poor wife. Yeah, honey, I probably shouldn't have done that. Well, are you saying you shouldn't have, or are you saying you should have? I'm confused by what you're saying. And you go and you read Psalm 51, you're like, man, I wish I had a heart like David's. I lost my place. The author of Psalm 51. Okay, that's, that's, if you're ever confused about this topic, go read Psalm 51. Then we come back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we see where the covenant is actually made between God and David, and we read this. This is... Read Psalm 51, and then read this, and it completely makes sense. This is what God says to David. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Now, I want to just point out something here. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. Does God assume perfection at the start? No. What he expects is, is for the descendants of David to be like David, right? You send the prophet Nathan to David, uh, Nathan tells David a story. David realizes that he is actually the person that Nathan is talking about in the story. He realizes his sin, and then he sits down and he writes Psalm 51. And God's like, yes, that is what I'm looking for. And that does not describe Saul. Does that describe us? 
Is that what we're like? Okay, right? I mean, most of us have never stood on the roof, seen a woman bathing, and then murder her husband so we can sleep with her. Most of us have never done that, right? Sure. But has, right? None of us have gotten that low. But how many of us, when we sin, write Psalm 51? Right? So what I'm going to give David is the extremes on both ends. I'd be like, man, maybe I don't sin like David, but I certainly don't repent like him. And and this is something that I, when it comes to Old Testament characters, is healthy for us to think about. Because the way God looks at people is not the way we look at them. And what we have to do is learn to look at people the way he does. And if he says this about David, there's not something wrong with God, and there's not something wrong with David. David received a promise of a descendant who would be God's own son and with whom he would establish a kingdom that would last forever. Luke chapter 1, verse 31 to 33. And behold, the angel says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the throne of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is the angel, right? He, he comes, and, and after all the silent history and all the history of the kingdoms of Israel, the first thing on the lips of the angel is the person I'm give, that God is giving you is tied directly to David. This is the person you're waiting for. And Mary does know. Mary does get it. If you don't believe me, go read the Magnificat. She understands what this means. She understands that the Lord Jesus has come. She understands that he is the Savior and the Messiah. Now, this is what the prophets were always talking about. In Psalm 89, 29, this is their hope. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Psalm 89, 29, listen, I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Jeremiah 23, 5, behold, the days are coming. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, deal, uh, king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And the, April, and the angel comes to Mary and says, that is who you are now going to give birth to. The Lord's faithfulness to his people in bringing about all of his promises is the story of Christ's advent. Luke 1, 68 to 73. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, why was Jesus able to accomplish what no other man had been able to do? What is it that makes him so different? I like to think it's because he's God. Well, I mean, if you would have, right, when I was born, if you would have given me half of my internal person is, is divine, I would have been able to do it too. Right? That's why he's so special. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever been tempted to think that? But what is it that makes, see, we, we don't understand exactly what Jesus did when he, lay, when he set aside his divinity. He, he came power... And, in, in utter powerlessness, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to go out and to overcome temptation in every way. And, and, and he, he started and he was unfallen. And, and, and what makes him so special is, is that what he always wanted. It's what he always wanted is what makes him special. Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. 
Out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The heart of Jesus is the point. His heart is the thing that makes him different from all of us. If the heart determines the fruitfulness and the validity of the words of our mouths, who was better than Jesus? Jesus, who bore eternal fruit for all who believe in him, Jesus, who spoke with true and perfect authority and truth, Jesus' heart is the key. And my point is this. If you've been given a new heart, how come you're not perfect like he is? Right? He's even the score. He's even the score now. Okay, you had a heart of flesh. Now he's given you a heart, right? I'm sorry, you had a heart of stone. It was a rock. You were dead. He gave you a heart of flesh. Why, why Why aren't you like Jesus now? Why aren't you walking around just like Jesus all the time? Well, it's because, it's because we don't really understand what, what we're supposed to do with this heart. Right? I, I, I recently, yeah, this, is, this is what I think of. Recently, I bought my wife a gun. I've, I've been raised with guns. I don't really even think about it. I know how to handle them. But it, but it was moderately entertaining and a little shaming to me when we went to the range and I put the gun in her hands and she had no idea what to do with it. And then I got real nervous, <laughs> right? She's handling something she's never handled before. But what happens if you accidentally turn sideways and pull the trigger? Well, every, people start dying, right? I mean, she's got this thing, and she doesn't know what to do with it. She doesn't know, like, how do you hold it? How do you rack it? How do you load it? How do you take the mag out? What way do you point it? And, and what I find is that, <laughs> sorry, Anne-Marie, but it's true. I did not train her very well before I took her there. We have since had some training. But what, it, what has happened is that we have all been given this new heart, and we don't know what to do with it. We don't know what to do with it. David knew what to do with his heart. Jesus knew what to do with his heart. He, he, he came with it. He maintained it the whole time he was here. And, and it's what makes, um, it, what makes it possible for all of us to have a new heart. And now that we've been given this new heart, what do we do with it? And I think, I want you to honestly think. If you've never thought about it this way, God has given you a new heart. What are you supposed to do with it? The heart is the key issue here. Jesus' heart, your heart, this is what we're talking about. This is what David, this is why David was chosen king. This is why Jesus was successful as the Messiah. It's the heart. Now, the heart is what makes a man all that he is. It's what governs him. Character, personality, will, mind, these are all modern terms. We use them in different categories, but in the, as far as the Bible is concerned, they're all the same thing. Your character, your personality, your will, your mind, that is your heart. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, did Jesus keep his heart? In the Hebrew worldview, the heart was the whole man. With all his attributes, physical, intellectual, psychological, this is what the Hebrews were talking about and speaking about when they say the heart. The heart is the governing center of of your whole person. The heart is used metaphorically to describe the intangibles that constitute what it means to be a human being. Heart is an antonym for the flesh, the body, the person. The heart is used to describe those dynamic forces that make us unique individual people. Now, what are we called to do with our hearts? This is where we run into the problem. Deuteronomy 6.5. It's as simple as this. This is it. This is all you got to do. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's it. Okay. Amen. <laughs> it's as simple as that, right? 
the heart is imbued with moral qualities. Right? When we talk about the heart, we're talking about the person. Psalm 131, verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, which is a super eloquent, poetic way of David simply saying, I'm a humble guy. Right? When I say uh, I'm really humble, that's like a joke I like to tell. I'm the humblest guy I know. Right? And, and what I love about this is if you stop and think about what David's saying, he, what is he saying? He's saying I'm a humble guy. But listen how he says it. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So when he's talking about his whole person, he's talking about his heart. Now, the New Testament uses, uses the references to the heart in, in exactly the same way. It is the seed of the will, according to Mark chapter 3, verse 5. It is the intellect, Mark chapter 2, verse 6 and 8. It's also the source of our emotions, Luke 24, 32. It is because the heart stands for human personality that God looks at it rather than our actions to know if we're faithful or not. The heart matters a great deal. 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look upon on, on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. When he's looking at you, that's what he's looking at, because it tells him everything he needs to know. All the springs of your life come from it, right? What kind of person are you when you speak? What kind of person are you when you work? What kind of person are you at leisure? What kind of person are you with friends? What kind of husband and wife are you? What kind of child are you? What kind of Christian are you? He looks at the heart and tells him everything. It's right? One glance, boom, I got it. Now, let's go back now and read Genesis 6-5 again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The heart is the problem. The Old Testament, by the end of the Old Testament, we have to understand the problem with man is his heart is now no longer with the Lord. He, it's not Godward. It, it's not full of life. The, the springs of it are, are, are vile and wicked and filthy water, and that's what's coming out of man all the time. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 through 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, what are the modern prophets of Disney think about this? Right? I mean, I'm, it, this, is the, this is why cultural engagement is so important. Because we sit the little kitties down in front of the TV. We're like, man, I want a break. Here, guys, turn on Disney Plus, watch some Disney. And the message of Disney is there's nothing wrong with your heart. The problem is you're not following your heart. And then we go to the scriptures and we're like, whoa, wait, wait. The problem with man is he's following his heart. Now, what do you think is the long-term... Like, I've been watching Disney movies now. I'm, I'm 40, so probably 38 years. <laughs> right? Now, what is the accumulative effect of that message on me? I somehow believe in my heart as something to stand upon, as something to defend, as something to follow, as if it's glorious and good. And is it only Disney that does this? No, but we've all been catechized properly by Disney. This, is, this right here is why cultural engagement, when we talk so much about cultural engagement, it's why we're talking about it. Because the scriptures say, please, if you're going to trust in anything in this universe, don't make it your own heart. Matthew 15, verse 19, for out of the heart come evil, 
evil thoughts, sorry, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. All of that is what's in your heart. Now, do you want to follow that? Do you want your children to follow that? Do you want the primary message that your children hear about hearts is to this is what you ought to obey? Jesus is the promised heir of David whose heart pursues the Lord. For Jesus did all of the Father's will. That, was the, that is what he came to do. It's what he came to do. It was what he was all about. It was his breakfast, his lunch, his dinner. The, the will of the Father, his, his submitting his will to the will of the Father, his heart directed towards the Father's will, that is what makes him a person with a Godward heart. In the history of Christian doctrine, the obedience of Christ is central to his redemptive power. It's how he defeated the devil. Matthew 4.4. 4. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's not just, right, when he's attacked by Satan, he doesn't just flip through his Bible and be like, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll say some verses at this thing here. And I'll defend myself with just random verses. No, he's, he, he in, in summation, he summarizes his whole worldview in a couple of verses. If you want to know what a person ought to think, if you want to know what a person ought to love, if you want to know how a person ought to defend themselves when they're being tempted, just go read when Jesus is tempted because he summarizes the, the Old Testament in, as a defense for himself in, in, in just a few verses. And, and the primary one is, listen, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word of God. That is the thing that makes us live. And, and, and Jesus is the source of life. And so he's not going to give away his heart. He's not going to, to do whatever he wants. He's not going to go wherever his own heart wants to lead. Matthew 4.10, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Him only. Sh- shall you serve yourself? No. Shall you worry more about serving your spouse than the Lord? Should you worry more about serving your kids than the Lord? Should you worry more about serving the governor than the Lord? Should you worry more about serving your boss than the Lord? This is what Paul said in Philippians 2 of the Lord. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is what all of this is about. He didn't consider himself ever. He always considered what the father would do. If the father were here, what would, the, what would the father do? And that's what he did. Now, this is how he describes his own life. John 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. Can, can you say that? Like, this is what I love about scripture. We could spend the rest of the time just talking about this for, for Sabbath here. He, Jesus, Jesus, who can tell right, the wind to be quiet, who can make as much bread as he wants, who can part, right, walk on water, part the water, who cares, whatever, the water doesn't exist, I'm going to do whatever, right, he, he has this power to control everything around him, and he says, I can do nothing on my own. Now, if he can't do anything on his own, what does that say about the rest of us? Like, I'm super tempted to just make the rest of the sermon about this, but I'm going to go on. This is what he says, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is completely dependent upon the Father. In in this expression of humility and obedience and dependence, we see the obedience of the ideal son. Jesus does nothing by himself. Literally, he doesn't do anything from himself. His source of being and activity is not himself, but the Father. Jesus cannot act from himself, for to do so would be to exist autonomously from the Father. 
All sons seek their father's will. This is why in Reformed theology, we don't talk about free will. We talk about a bound will. Your, your will is not free. I'm going to say that now. If you have any questions about that, come see me afterwards. Your will is bound up in, in who your father is. John eight forty four. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The sons of Satan seek the will of their father, Satan, which is to lie and to murder. So therefore, what should the sons of God do? Now, the second person of the Trinity, the son, is distinct from the father, or he would not be the son, but he is not autonomous. And I think this is really what throws a lot of us. This is, this is something to really consider in the age in which we live, where, where people worry about losing the individual. Am I an individual or am I part of a body? Is it just me or is it us? Jesus is not autonomous, though he is distinct. When Jesus says the son sees what his father is doing, he's not saying that he makes rational deductions regarding God's activity from what he can observe in scripture or history or nature. He's not sitting down and saying, oh, let me logic, I see it, because I have this evidence before me and I can make deductions about what God wants me to do. That's not what he means. Since Jesus is in the bosom of the Father, John 1.18, totally at one with the Father, John 10.30, he sees God differently than anyone else ever has, John 1.18 and 6.46. While he is referring to his human experience, Jesus has a sensitivity beyond human experience to God's voice because his intimacy with God is unclouded by sin. He came with this oneness with the Father, and he never lost it. We have all lost it, and we can't get it back ourselves. He came, he had it, he never lost it. That's why when he goes around, he says, I know exactly what the Father would do right now. Because it's as if, right, the Father's with him all the time. But hold on, let me go back, because English is difficult for me. It's not like. (laughs) It is because the Father is with him all the time. Adam had, was walking in the cool of the day, and he lost that. Jesus was walking in the cool of the day, in the heat of the day, in the dark of the day, in the light of the day. Any time of the day, the Father was there walking with him. This sight, then, refers to his constant communion with the Father. Thus, the actions he refers to are not some special sign done now and then to illustrate what the Father is like. It's not as if he does a miracle and says, okay, this is what the Father would do. This is something he might do. It's everything he does. When he lifts a fork to his mouth, when he walks or doesn't walk, when he talks to someone or doesn't talk to someone, when he heals someone or doesn't heal them, everything he does, it's because if the Father were there, that is what he would do. John 5.19, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus does what he, what Father does. A complete unity of action is stated here. Not only is everything in Jesus' life reflective of God the Father, but also everything the Father does is reflected in the life of Jesus. Right? So many of us are like the apostles. Wait, I, I mean, oh, come on, again. Jesus saw the Father. If I saw the Father, I'd do the same thing. But we have seen the Father. We've seen him. We've seen him because we've seen Jesus. John 14, 14 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Now, again, let's, just, let's stop and ask ourselves this question. 
Have you been with the right? Have you been with Jesus so long and still don't know him? Oh, it says Philip. Well, I mean, I could just put any of your names there. Have you been with him so long and you still don't know him? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, how many of you have ever, right? How many of you, like myself, I hope, I, hope, I assume, have been like, man, just like Moses, just walk by me. Like, I'll hide, I'll hide in the rock and you just kind of stroll by and I'll only look at your back. And we still yearn for this, don't we? I want a father. I want a father that looks upon me, that I look upon, that, that I can t- touch and hug and eat with. And, and Jesus' whole point is, listen, guys, you've gotten that because I'm here. And that oneness that he has with the Father is why his heart is always after God. Right? He never had to write Psalm 51. John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 4.34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Romans 15.3, for Christ did not please himself. (laughs) That one was hard to write. Because how often can we say that? Like, I'm not, right, Jesus said, right, right, they said of Jesus, he, he didn't do anything to please himself. Like, I'm trying to think back over the last three weeks where I didn't, everything I didn't do was to please myself. Christ did not please himself. That, that was not what he was about. Right? And that was his heart, was to, was to not please himself, but to please his father. Now, you're not him. You can never be him. You can try as hard as you want. You can spend the rest of your days here. God could come down out of heaven and give you five extra lifetimes. You know what would still happen? You would still do everything to please yourself. So this load of coal that I'm dumping on everyone's head, including my own, is to offset what I'm about to tell you. Because this is what they were waiting for. They wanted this, and you've been given it. Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27. I will take... I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what they were waiting for, and that is what we've been given. God will cleanse Israel from her impurities, especially her idolatry, which had defiled herself and the land and the world. This cleansing and forgiveness are symbolized by sprinkling with clean water. Has anyone here been washed with water? Has anyone here had a minister wash you with water? What was that about? That was about your heart. This cleansing and forgiveness are symbolized by sprinkling with clean water. Jesus is the true husband whose bride is perfected through cleansing by his love. 
Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. He's cleaning you so that you will be clean. Right? He's freed you so that you would be free. And, and we take the freedom, we take the cleansing, and what do we do? What are you doing with the new heart that he's given you? It is important to remember that ceremonial cleansing always is an external rite, but it, it's a ritual that also calls for internal repentance. A repentance no man was ever able to make for himself. God promised to regenerate his people spiritually by giving them a new heart and a new spirit. No longer will Israel be characterized by perverse thinking or unresponsive to, unresponsiveness to God. He's healing all the things that are wrong with us. He's taking away our concern for ourselves. He's taking away our lack of love for him. He's taking away our selfwardness and replacing it with Godwardness. This is what he promised in the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. He takes away everything that makes it impossible for us to comprehend him. He takes away all of those things that make it put distance between us and him. So that what we might have is him the way Jesus had him. All the time, nonstop. That's why you were given a new heart. That's what it's for. It's not so that people can be impressed with the fact that you don't swear. Right? Well, I'm not a drunk and I don't swear. This is nice, this whole Christianity thing. We dress up once a week in nice clothes, stare at a wall and sing songs. It's respectable to be here. Right? Watch my works. You're given, right? You're cleansed and you're given a new heart for what purpose? So that you, right? Not all this external stuff. It's so that you might have the Father all the time the way Christ had the Father all the time. It's a conduit directly to him. That's the point. Now, the enabling power to do this is the Spirit of God. God called this new spirit my spirit, meaning Yahweh's Holy Spirit. That is what he had never given the people of Israel in in its entirety. That is what, right? They're all waiting. How do we get this heart clean? How do we get back to God? Look at Psalm 51. I totally agree. Somebody clean me with Somebody give back the joy of my salvation. Somebody give it to me. And the Father comes through the Son and gives us the Spirit so that what? What? We can own Bibles and not read them? Right? We, 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 we can, by the bucket full, drink at the trough of the world. 
Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what this is about. The fullness of God dwelling in you. The fullness of God dwelling in us. Comprehending the love that God has, not just for you, but for you and your, and your whole family and for all of us together and for the whole world. This is what Paul said to the Corinthians. Now, let me go back again, right? Because this confuses us. If you guys remember the Corinthians, what a hot mess they were, right? If I was writing a letter to them, it would not be this nice because I've read Corinthians. I don't know why Paul is so nice to them in the end. This is what he says to them. Listen, you yourselves are a letter of recommendation written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You are an epistle of the Apostle Jesus. He's the first apostle, because apostle means sent one. You are a love letter written by Jesus to your spouse, and to your children. You're a love letter written by the Lord Jesus for the people that you work with and the people you ride the bus with that is supposed to be read by all. You're a love letter. Is, is it, when, you, when you get up in the morning, <laughs> I'm a love letter. Get ready, everyone. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, being rooted and grounded in love. Why? That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now remember, the, remember, Right, let's go back to the very beginning. The anointed of the Lord must be teachable and obedient. Isaiah 50, verse 4 through 5. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Now, you cannot say that in yourself. But when Christ comes into your life and he gives you your spirit and you're rooted and grounded in love and you're united to him and through him to the Father, what you are is teachable now. What you know how to do is to have a word for the weary. What you know how to do is not rebel. What you know how to do is to not turn backwards towards the old life that he saved you from. The point of having a new heart is that it would be Godward, that we would go from here and that it would be Godward. Now, does he assume perfection? No. No, but every time you sit down and you read Psalm 51 out loud, the answer is Jesus. 
He says, yes, this, yes, yes, done. I will clean you with hyssop. I will return to you the joy of your salvation. And, and what I am doing now is sending you as an epistle, as a letter of love to the world. Because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And we are the bearers of that good news. We are the letter carriers. We are the letters ourselves. He did not save you so that you could have a comfortable life. He did not save you so that you could live under yourself. He came and he saved you because he's writing a love letter to the world. Now, do you want to be that good news to a weary and broken world? Right? It's, right? No. I, I will go three minutes after I'm done, done telling everyone this, and I'll be like, where's self? Right? I had to set him aside for a few minutes. Is he in the closet in the back? Well, hold on. I'll go back in my office, and I'll get self, and I'll bring him out here. And, God, and then I'll be like, man, look at that. That didn't take long. And then I'll think of Psalm 51, and God will do it all again. And tomorrow I'll yell at my wife. Well, I'm not planning on it, but if I yelled at my wife. And I would say, well, I really maybe shouldn't have done that. And then later I'll think Psalm 51, and I'll actually repent. And you know what will happen? God will do it again. He does get tired of it, right? Look at the sunrise. Look at the way that the, the seasons change. He never gets tired of the same thing. Every time you say Psalm 51 to him, he will recognize the voice of his son. He will recognize the voice of David. And he will say, I'll do it again. Heal you. I'll do it again. I'll save you. And what is he doing every time? He's sending a love letter to the world. And that's what he wants you to be. That's what he wants you to rejoice in. That's what he wants your identity to be. And that, that, ladies and gentlemen, is what he wants you to rejoice in always. Don't grow tired of doing good. Don't, Don't grow weary of who you are. Right? Every time you start to drift, go back to Psalm 51, and bada-bing, bada-boom, the whole process starts over again, and be a love letter to the world. The world needs it. Amen. Father, thank you so much for the advent of the Lord Jesus. Lord, as we are in this sin-wearied world waiting for the second advent of Christ, we thank you, Lord, for loving us, for dying for us, showing us your love in the fact that you took away our sins, that you re- renewed our hearts within us, that you united us to yourself and through you to the Father by the Spirit. I pray, Lord God, that we would not grow weary of being a love letter, that we would rejoice in this, that this would be our identity, that we would go in the power of this and love, Lord, as we've been loved. And amen.